Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really pleased to um, speak to Joe Merchant, who is a sports dietitian and a food service dietitian. Uh, she's been working at the Australian Institute of Sport for, oh, would it be 12 years now, Joe? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, wow. Joe was previously a shot put thrower. I was going to say shot putter, but I don't think that's actually technically the right thing to say. Um, and represented Australia. And I'm, I'll let her talk about that. She's a mother of two girls and fairly soon after her retirement as an athlete was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, so welcome to the program, Joe. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Joe. can you give us a little bit of background on your sporting pedigree and, you know, your, your sports nutrition dietetic kind of history as well? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess as a kid, I was always a pretty active sort of kid and then sort of fell into athletics um, in my, I guess, late high school years. And um, by nature, I, I was generally a fairly powerful, fast sort of athlete. So that lent itself um, very well to the throws. Um, although in some of my younger years, being a shot putter wasn't um, always so glamorous. So I did a bunch of other things like sprinting and that kind of stuff, but um, eventually um, ended up with, with shot because I was taught uh, good technique fairly early um, and just continued to do that through um, my university studies and then into my working life. Uh, and in 2009, I was um, looking around um, and saw the job of the food service dietitian at the Australian Institute of Sport become um, advertised and that was my two I guess passions both in nutrition and uh, general life um, so that food provision side of things as well as then the the sport side of things um, and so I applied for the job and relocated um, to to Canberra the capital um, for to work at the Australian Institute of Sport and with that then was able to have uh, 18 month lead up to the Delhi Commonwealth Games in 2010 which was my goal um, and yeah, thankfully I found a, a great coach who, um, really brought the best out in me and, um, took a chance on a fairly scrawny shot putter and, um, yeah, was fortunate enough to gain selection and then represented Australia, um, as you mentioned, Liz, at the beginning in the shot put at the 2010 Commonwealth Games in Delhi in India. Um, and that sort of 18 months of, um, training and, and work was pretty hard to manage. I guess that working full-time and training full-time was pretty uh, taxing, I guess, and, and possibly not as sustainable as I would have hoped. But anyway, we had a short-term goal and we worked towards it and, and fortunately were successful in, in getting there. Uh, I managed to oh, finish and, sixth. And not only, yeah, I was going to say not only successful in getting there, but also performed very well. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I managed to secure a sixth place and um, unfortunately missed out on a bronze by about 20 centimetres. It was a very close competition but um, very fond memories and, um, yeah, I, I felt like I'd, yeah, achieved, achieved something not just from getting there but also just in the in the process and being able to manage the, the workload and, and that kind of thing for working full-time and also training full-time. Um, 
so yeah, that's that's kind of my sport journey, I guess. I mean, there's lots of years and lots of blood, sweat, and tears that went into it, of course. Um, in the meantime, yes, we've abbreviated it very quickly. I, I remember a lot of that last eighteen months was was devoted towards putting some weight on. So, um, <laughs> so I remember you were trying to eat more and all, you know, working really hard in the gym and <laughs> having to get new clothes because you weren't fitting into anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I managed to put on ten kilos with um, unchained skin folds uh, or body fat levels. So that was a, a fairly big. Um, yeah, I, I was fairly happy with that success. That's kind of the holy grail in terms of increasing muscle mass. Um, and yeah, so I was I was pretty pretty happy with that. that as well. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> and then soon after. And it was relatively soon. It was within 12 months, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, four months actually, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, you had had some symptoms that um, that then recurred and, and so yeah. talk us through what your experience has been with you, the range of symptoms and your diagnosis of MS. Um, yeah, so that, that was, as you mentioned, very close after... Um, competing and I guess I went from the fittest I've ever been um, and evidently ever will be I suspect um, at at like the height of competition and strength and physical kind of I guess yeah healthiness in in some ways I guess Um, uh, to to being pretty sick pretty quickly I guess Um, so four months after competing I, I took a couple of weeks off um, or a month or so off just to kind of recuperate as you tend to do after those major competitions um, and then I was sort of in the process of deciding whether or not I was going to retire because I was already you know, in my 30s by this stage and and I kind of thought well it might be a time to kind of hang up the boots so to speak um, but it, the decision was only made uh, two weeks prior to um, the first onset of symptoms, and my first uh, experience, I guess, with with symptoms of of MS, which then led to my diagnosis, was diplopia, which is double vision. Um, and initially, it was only on the right hand side of my visual field, and so and I and I'd gotten a few headaches, and I kind of thought, oh, that's a bit strange. I'll go and see my doc and and see why I'm getting these headaches and and that kind of thing and they said oh just go and get an MRI it'll be right um and of course the the ability to get an MRI tends to be a little bit limited sometimes and um yeah you kind of have to wait a little while sometimes to get your MRI and a couple of weeks later I managed to get in and this was happened to be the same day that I had um the the vision um kind of disturbances I guess and and basically rang my GP and said, oh, look, I've got the MRI. When should I make a time to come in and um, have it looked at? And they said, oh, we don't have any appointments till next week. So I thought, okay, no problem. And then half an hour later they rang me back and said, you can have any appointment you want next tomorrow. <laughs> so at that point I got a little bit of little bit of panic <laughs> going, mm. oh, wow, what have they found? Um, and, yeah, so, so basically said, look, it looks like MS but we're not really sure. Um, we'll sort of see about the um, talking to the consultants and things like that at the hospital because, of course, my doc wasn't in a hospital. It was just an outpatient setting at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so then then my vision started to kind of deteriorate further. It wasn't just the right side of my visual field. It started to spread across the whole lot. 
Um, my friend who was an optometrist, I, I just asked her to come and have a look. There's something wrong with my eyes, that kind of thing. Um, and she said, we need to go to emergency straight away. So we went off and um, at that point they diagnosed me with CIS, which is, is sort of almost a precursor, I guess, to the diagnosis of MS um, with the thought that it probably is MS but there's only the one event so far. Um, there's not multiple as the name suggests. So um I, at that point, I, I then had a couple of days in hospital and was treated with um, with the, the steroid medication that's often used for um, MS relapses to try and improve the symptoms. And um, that was done partly in hospital and then partly as an outpatient. Um, and so two weeks later, I lost the coordination of the movement on one side of my body from the waist down um, yeah. and my speech started to slur. Um, and it just meant that the, I was putting the emphasis in the wrong syllable of the, the sentence, so it was very difficult to understand. Um, I, I kind of, and it was different to what, what my brain was sort of saying that I was trying to speak was not coming out right, I guess. And were you aware of that at the time? Um, yeah, because because I could see the confused faces, <laughs> confused faces of the people I was talking to, um, and I found it incredibly frustrating um, to try and communicate, but what was in my head made sense and what was coming out my mouth kind of didn't to those receiving the message. And that was, yeah, frustrating, I guess, <laughs> for want of a better description. Mm. Um, and when it was the um, the movement, I was, went back into hospital. And that's, at that point, that was where they diagnosed MS um, and started me on medication for the MS itself. Um, it was too close to the previous lot of steroid medication, so they couldn't actually administer any further um, but they just started the the regular uh, MS medication, um, and which was a, a capaxone, uh, which is a daily injection at the time. Um, I started on that, um, and pretty much went home with the hope to kind of just gradually improve because they diagnosed me with um, relapsing remitting MS. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the idea, um, as the name suggests, it does re- sort of uh, remit, so you get into a remission kind of phase. Um, and, yeah, so the idea was that I would just recover and hopefully recover all that function back again. Um, but unfortunately two weeks later again, the other side of my body from the waist down um, was uh, the coordination of that movement um, deteriorated as well. So... Um, I was then had both sides affected and also had urinary retention as well. So end up back in hospital again. Mm-hmm. Um, only this time they said that they weren't sure whether the medication that they'd put me on wasn't strong enough or whether I just hadn't been on it long enough for it to take effect. Um, either way, they said because the symptoms were quite dramatic, it probably is in our interest to put you on a more, I guess, a stronger medication. Um, So they did that. So it kind of got me medically stable, I guess, put me on this stronger medication, which was um, Tysabri is what it's called in Australia. I think the chemical name is Natalizabab. And it uh, is like an infusion. So you get hooked up to a drip for an hour. It rolls through. um, And, yeah, so I was in hospital. I had that treatment in hospital and then was transferred to a rehabilitation hospital to learn to walk again and to gradually regain function. Um, so I think the process of um, the initial onset of symptoms where it was just my vision that was affected right through to when I finally walked out of the rehab hospital pushing my wheelchair was around about that six-month mark. So most of mm-hmm. 2011 
was the first half of 2011 was taken up with sort of this journey, I guess. Um, and, yeah, so then I remained on um, the Thai Sabri infusions and that was a monthly kind of infusion. You kind of go into a day unit a bit like you would if you were going in for chemotherapy and, um, and I gradually uh, kind of worked my way back to um, working again full time mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, and I've been very fortunate uh, to have then um, been quite stable and then I only had a, a another set of symptoms. Um, so when I came back, I, I worked at the 2012 Olympics and when I came back from those games, um, my husband and I decided we were going to try and start a family. So we, I had to come off the um, infusion medication and go back onto the original one that I was placed on, which is called Capaxone, um, because it was seen as being... Uh, a little more safe in pregnancy. Well, mm-hmm. actually, it was as there was more um, evidence or research of that because it was an older drug. Um, so yeah, so then we we I came off medication. Pregnancy tends to be quite protective um, against relapses of MS. So um, my neurologist suggested that I was able to um, come off the medication while I was pregnant. Yep. So after it was confirmed, I came off that medication and I was off medication then through until my eldest was about six months old and I'd had an mm-hmm. MRI at about the three-month mark because that um, that time immediately after the baby's born tends to be a higher-risk um, period of time for um, relapses. And yep. so um, he did an MRI at that three-month mark and everything looked as it had on my previous MRI, so he wasn't concerned. But he did say because of the severity of my initial symptoms that at the six month mark when my when I wanted to kind of start to wean my baby, um, that I needed to go back on some medication at that point um, to prevent further yeah. issues, and that he would then see me, um, you know, at that sort of nine, ten, twelve month mark, um, and at that point they found another three lesions, um, but I was asymptomatic at that point. Oh, um, right. So okay, yeah, so they found a further lesions, um, but it meant that. Like though, and he he wasn't surprised that I hadn't noticed anything because of the positioning of those lesions on MRI. He said, "Look, they wouldn't necessarily look like, um, you know, they you wouldn't necessarily experience those symptoms because of the position of the lesions." So, um, which just meant that for any further children I had, that I needed to remain on the medication throughout the pregnancy and through the the lactation period as well, um, which yeah. has been the case. And, and my youngest is now four, turning five in January. So she's absolutely fine. So there's no evidence of any issues with that either. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my MS journey. Currently I am uh, largely asymptomatic. Uh, occasionally I get hot feet. Um, there is one occasion I can recall prior to diagnosis when I had hot feet, which um, so it may or may not be connected to my MS. We're just not really sure about that. Mm-hmm. Um, over the last few years, I have had the odd occasion where I've had um, what the urologist calls um, a, uh, I think he called it a cranky bladder. <laughs> I think it <laughs> <laughs> basically just means that the neurological messages going from your brain to your bladder um, kind of say, oh, your bladder's full, you've got to go to the toilet, and you get urgency when that's not the reality of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So so I've had that, but they the urologist had me on a period of time of medication just briefly and said this will probably be a short-term thing and then your bladder will sort itself out and then maybe in a few years' time you might have something similar, in which case then we'll put the medication back in for another period of time and then so and that coupled with obviously pelvic floor exercises and things like that to help from the I guess the physical management of it as well not just the pharmacological one yep so yeah on the whole I'm well um and it was 10 years since diagnosis this year and the um MS society do a uh, a fundraising run for MS research and so I um decided this year I'd attempt the 10k um to commemorate the 10 years of since mm. my diagnosis and um, hauling a shot putter's butt around 10k is not um, not a really <laughs> easy feat. <laughs> we got there in the end, so I was quite happy in the end. <laughs> well done, well done. That's awesome. Thanks for the, thanks for that, Joanna, and really pleased that you are symptom free. You were quite young um, for your diagnosis, so isn't isn't that the case that most diagnoses are a little bit later on? Um, I, if my understanding is somewhere between the range of 20 to 40 is the average oh, age okay. for mm-hmm. MS um, diagnoses um, and I was at 30, turning mm-hmm. 31, so I was kind of smack bang in the middle. But it, it's also females tend to be more, um, the more MS diagnoses are given to females than to males. Um, that's my understanding anyway. Yeah, yeah. And the the impairments that are caused by that are dependent completely on where the the um, area of the brain, as you said, that is affected. So it's the, the the neural function in the brain that is affected and depending on where in the brain that happens is what the um, symptoms that you may experience and whether they're longer term or, or shorter term. And so everybody, you know, when you look at the research for um, MS, uh, it, it's very site-specific, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, mm. yeah. And do you have any issues with heat tolerance in general apart from your hot feet? Do you find that your ability to, to tolerate the heat um, is, is different than when it was when you know 10 years earlier? Um, it, it's really hard to answer that. I, I think um, my my family live in North Queensland, which is one of the hottest areas in um, in Australia. And um, over Christmas, I've I've had since my diagnosis, I've had a couple of Christmases up there, and thankfully they kind of live near the beach, and there's a nice sea breeze most places, so I haven't mm. had too much problems with it. Um, so I, I'm very fortunate, I think. But I wonder whether that's also due to I guess, um, conditioning in my younger years um, that I'm not affected by it so much. Um, mm-hmm. Living in, in Canberra is a cooler cooler climate, so I don't have to necessarily experience any heat issues in terms of tolerance where I live. It's only when I go to visit family. But like I said, I, I wonder whether there's still some underlying, I guess, um, acclimatization that might have occurred in the first sort of well my formative years that may have helped yeah. with that too I don't know um but I'm fortunate not to suffer too much with it um and mm-hmm. I also just I think I, I think spending my university holidays picking fruit in the blazing hot sun in the middle of December um <laughs> in North Queensland probably um allowed me to really work on that mind over matter thing like you mm-hmm. your ability to go you know this is, I'm, I'm coping really well this is not too hot so all <laughs> 
probably all contribute, although I'm not sure there's a huge amount of science behind it. <laughs> and speaking of science, though, as a dietitian, you've done a bit of research on nutrition um, and how that interacts with MS. Um, tell me some, some of the key things that you, you've learned from that process. Um, I, I think really um, there's no particular diet that all MS people with MS have should be on or, or anything like that. I think um, like like we've said a, a couple of times, we, we've talked about how each person's journey differs a bit um, and different people have different experiences with symptoms and and I think most of the nutrition that I've I've seen in relation to it is, is in the management of those um, those impairments or, or symptoms depending on whether they're a, a long-term thing or, or whether it's a short instances so so for instance in, in my case like I said I, I've had some of uh, the occasional bladder thing that we've dealt with and and that's not um, really affected my diet greatly only to make sure that that I you know it's more about timing for me like if I've got to get um, get the kids to school and I've got a half an hour to get to school and then I've got to drop the little one into preschool and sign her in and have a chat and get her lunchbox sorted and her bag in a locker and all of that kind of thing and then get to work I'm talking about an hour and a half to two hours where I don't have access to a, a bathroom I guess mm. so um, I just modify the timing of things more so than the actual quantities and that kind of stuff so I guess um, it's more about that symptom um, maybe not relief but management I guess that that I've I've discovered I guess if if we go back to the the diet yourself for for MS is it is it an inflammatory type of um, problem that happens with the the neural the nerve system is is it a type of inflammation um, well, it's an autoimmune disease, so it does have some inflammation component to it, um, and so there is there is that to a point, and it just depends on again, like we said, where things are in the brain, and the spinal cord also is affected by MS as well, but um, predominantly the brain in terms of the control centre. Yeah, and so there's a lot of discussion, I guess, around at the moment about anti-inflammatory diets and anti-inflammatory foods. What do you think are the key upshots that people need to kind of um, remember when it comes to managing inflammation and autoimmune diseases? Um, I, I, I think I think it's unfortunately a very individual thing. So the, probably the best thing to do is actually to talk to your local sports dietitian or whoever you're connected in with um, because they'll be able to advise based on what you you need to look at and, and severity of symptoms and how they affect function and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't know that I can give anything specific there on that one, but certainly it's worth chatting to the individual dietitian about it. Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of people go, oh, you know, dairy's really bad at the moment. You, well, you can't have dairy because that's inflammatory and, um, you know, or you should have a lot of, I don't know, olive oil because that's anti-inflammatory. Um, the message is more around the overall balance to to the diet making sure that you're still getting all the nutrients that you need yeah i think so i mean i i guess like i said before that there's no specific ms diet specifically mm -hmm. and when when i say nothing specific i mean obviously a healthy diet is is advisable for everybody um in whatever form that that takes uh um i think it's it's important to keep that that sort of overall balance in mind when you're doing it absolutely and switching a little bit away from MS specifically as a food service dietitian, what 
factors do you consider important when you're feeding para-athletes as compared to any able-bodied athletes? Well, I guess we, we're fortunate we, we provide food to a large variety of athletes of all sort of shapes and sizes and all, all different sports and, and both able-bodied and um, para-athletes. And so in order to cater successfully for all of them, we have to do large scale of everything pretty much. Um, and we have a buffet arrangement so people can um, select what suits their needs or their requirements best. And I guess that's that's probably the, the way we manage it. Um, we try and get to know people um, really well. So if there's something from a practical point of view we can do to help, then we, we try and make sure that we know who the people are that are coming and eating with us. And so we try and keep those channels open, I guess, is, is probably the biggest thing, but making sure that people are able to follow recommendations that have been given by their sports dietitian and that they have the capacity to do that in what we provide. Um, so I don't know that there's anything specifically we do differently for anybody in particular in the dining space that we we operate, but rather just making sure that we're aware of everyone that's there and if there is something that someone needs that we can do that. Um along with what the impairment is and, and how we can best cater for them, I guess, in, in a, yeah, long story short. <laughs> Perfect. So, Joe, any specific messages that you have for practitioners who are working with athletes who are diagnosed with MS? Um, I guess the biggest thing is to know what you're dealing with in a lot of ways because there is different forms of MS and different forms have different um, onset of symptoms and each person is different so understanding and taking the time to understand the athlete um, and and what their experience is where their journey's been and and how they cope with different um, I guess scenarios and and there'll be there'll be things that the athlete understands because they've walked through that and then there'll be other things that the the athlete can really um, can really kind of think oh hang on a second that'd be really good if I tried that so it's largely working together and really having a good understanding of of what the athlete experiences on a regular basis and not being afraid to ask kind of questions that seem a little bit like they're prying but it actually equips you to better um I guess treat or help the athlete great and you know from the athlete's perspective making sure that you are very open with your communication with Mm -hmm. the practitioner um, any other recommendations that you have for athletes who are diagnosed with MS? Um, I, I guess the biggest one would be just to make sure that the medication you're on is actually doing the trick because um, mm-hmm. I, I was diagnosed in 2011 and there was, it, at the time, one of the doctors I saw was like, well, this is a really good time to be diagnosed with MS as opposed to like 10 years ago when there was only one or two treatment options and move forward another 10 years now and, and you're looking at an array of options in terms of treatment and it's really important that if if the treatment you're currently on isn't actually holding your, your symptoms at bay, well, then it's probably worth having that conversation with your neurologist and, and investigating the possibility of something that may actually be better at treating the symptoms and that kind of thing. So yeah, always keep those those channels of communication open with your all your your um your team, I guess your your doctors, your dietitians, whoever else is in your team, definitely. Great. Joe, what's your favorite food? Strawberries for sure. <laughs> oh, natural or dipped? Oh, dipped in chocolate always. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll, I'll take them however they're given. But, yeah, if there's chocolate involved, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Joe, very much for having a conversation with us. It's been great having you. Give us, well, give us some out, uh, aspect to your story. I think it's, you know, it's every story is unique and your openness with that is um, greatly appreciated. So thank you very much for your time. No problem at all. Thanks for having me.